now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? There I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this, is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given the thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God to us. Thank you, Alex. We, uh, we were tempted to have her read just the rest of the book of Mark. But then we thought we would just leave it with 26 verses. Hey, thanks so much for reading today. If you've got a Bible, open to the passage that was just read, Mark chapter 14, 1 to 26 is where we'll be today. My name is Chad Kinser. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, if you're a guest with us, I'm really, really glad that you're here. If this is your first time back with us in a while, it's a privilege to have you back. And um, I want to pray uh, that God would help us to understand this passage. I'm really excited to open this. This is a passage that has um, ministered to me deeply this week. And uh, so to share it with you is a real, is a real privilege and an honor this morning. Um, we are working our way through the book of Mark and nearing the end as we approach Easter. So here on the tail end, you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and then we'll see how, we'll see how we can get to work today. 
Father, thank you for the three that were baptized uh, earlier in the service. And I pray even now as they hear the word preached that they would know that they've taken a step of obedience toward you and we together witness this, this obedience and we all say with them, Jesus, we want to be obedient to you. I pray that you would seal their faith. I pray that you would protect them. God, I pray that they would grow up and bear strong testimony of your work and your love for them. And God, as we approach your word, I, I pray that you'd help us understand. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see? Jesus, would you capture us? And Father, would you hold our attention to see your son, Jesus? A variety of places that we all need to meet with God today and to hear from God. And I pray that this, you would spare us from this just being another religious exercise. And as we open, as we open your perfect and precious word, would there be a fresh encounter of your presence, God? We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I didn't, I didn't grow up going to church on the regular. We occasionally went growing up. I didn't really start following Jesus until I was 16, 17 years old. And um, maybe you remember some of the first preaching you heard when you became a Christian. For me, some of the first preaching that I heard <clears throat> as, a, as a sophomore in high school was self-help type of preaching. And so regularly the sermons would sound like this. T today we're going we're gonna to have four steps to better relationships or three keys to a better marriage or seven pathways to life change. These are the kinds of sermons. And advocates for this sort of model of preaching early on would say that the strength of it is that it's going to show you that God's word means something for right now and it applies to every part of your life. And, and so what would happen is there would be you know, some sort of point made and then a Bible verse that was found to match the point. But for me as a young Christian, uh, with all of that that I heard, there, there was a problem because I would go to church for six or seven weeks having heard some of these things and taken the lists and the, the steps and the pathways and the keys and the hacks. And after six or seven weeks of going to church, I had 48 things to do and I was terrible at all of them. Right? And I loved Jesus the best I understood what that meant to love Jesus, but I couldn't keep all the steps and the pathways straight. I couldn't keep it all straight. I, I, so I would encounter temptations or I'd encounter conflicts in relationships or things that were going on around me, and I couldn't remember which step from the sermon I heard last week applied to that moment, so I felt like I needed to race home and rifle through my sermon notes to find, oh, that's the pathway that I missed there in that moment, right? And as an early Christian, I, I mean, I, I, after two years of following Jesus, I, I nearly walked away from the faith because I felt like I loved Jesus but I couldn't keep up with what I, learned, what I felt like I was hearing all his expectations for me. I, I couldn't keep up with all of the steps and the hacks and everything to keep it in order. And it was early in college, I came across, um, I had a friend give me some CDs. You remember those things? Some CDs and there were some sermons and um, it was this novel thing that the preacher stood up and he didn't try to get innovative with the Bible. He just took a passage, explained it, showed the character of Jesus in the passage and what he came to do, and then he showed why that matters for your whole life. And that model of preaching absolutely changed my life. Absolutely changed my life because at that point, it was no longer about remembering the steps and the hacks and the pathways 
Instead, it was just about taking one step after another toward Jesus and learning that I really can bring, I, lear- I really can bring, <laughs> that got worse. <laughs> this is that great moment in a sermon when you feel like you're jiving and then you're like a handsy preacher like me, which is not a thing to say, I now realize. That is, this is how it ends. (laughs) I like to use my hands when I talk. That's where it stops. Um, Now it has to use a handheld mic. Nonetheless, here we, here we go. Amazing. Guys, this was free. This is absolutely free. What I was trying to get at was that having the Bible unfolded for me like that was no longer about remembering, you know, how to put it all together and crack the code. It was just about taking one step after another and learning that I can trust Jesus with my whole life, even the darkest parts of me, that I can give even the worst parts of myself to him, that every bit of him covers every bit of me. And so maybe you've heard life hack preaching before. Maybe you haven't heard that, but maybe you've read a self-help book. Maybe you've um, tried self-help spirituality. Here's what's ironic about all that. We, we probably have. It's the largest you know, section of books sort of anywhere you can find. The problem with all this self-help stuff is that we still are the way that we are. We still are. So either the self-help stuff doesn't work, or it does work, and we're just that busted that it doesn't work for us. Or both, <laughs> right? Or both. But doesn't our lived experience suggest to us that what you need, what I need most, isn't new data? You don't need new data. You don't need a new technique or a new hack. What you actually need most is a bigger vision of God. And who is God for me in Jesus? And what has he done for me? And then how do I yield my whole life to him? Like, like that's what you and I need most. And so I start with that today because that's actually been our desire over the last 40 weeks of studying the book of Mark. We've just tried to take a passage of scripture, chunk by chunk, moment by moment, vignette by vignette, and just say, here he is. Best we can, explain it, show you what that matters for your life, and then, and then move from there. And today is no different. And I wanted to kind of begin with all of that today because... This passage is some of the most breathtaking and vulnerable moments in the life of Jesus before he moves to his suffering. Um, It's made me a bit intimidated and a bit nervous to even open this passage this week because I'm afraid that, certainly by myself, I can't do justice to it. But I just want us to see today how breathtaking and how vulnerable these moments of Jesus are with his followers before his suffering. So I'll give you the flow and then we'll jump into it. Jesus is the new temple, Jesus is the new sacrifice. And Jesus is the true king. New temple, new sacrifice, and true king. This passage might be the clearest in all of scripture on what pure and simple devotion looks like. But the irony and tragedy of where this passage begins in Mark chapter 14 is that there's this extravagant act of love that we're going to see in just a moment. This extravagant act of love to Jesus. But it's smashed between extravagant acts of hate against Jesus. 
So the passage begins in verses one and two with the religious leaders trying to arrest him by stealth. They're plotting and they're strategizing, how can we take him down without causing an uproar? We've got to snuff him out. Extravagant act of hate. And then the passage is bookended in verses 10 and 11 where Judas makes the decision to work with those leaders that are trying to take him out and saying, I'll actually help you with the stealth. We'll do it from the inside and I'll betray him. But in the midst of those acts of hate, there's this act of love sandwiched between, notice this ray of light in the midst of darkness. Pick up in verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, they were irate, why was this an ointment wasted like that? For this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They, they were angry at her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. And she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel's proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There's so much that we could observe from this passage, but for the sake of time, I want us to see just two things. One of them is going to require us to zoom out and see the panorama of this narrative of Scripture. And the other one will require us to then zoom back in and land on the moment. To understand what Mark wants us to see here, you've got to see this event happening in the flow of the text as it comes in the things that precede it. There's a scholar I read this week who unfolds that, really helpful. There's a story about a woman who gives generously to the temple. He's talking about the widow back at the end of chapter 12. There's a woman who gives generously to the temple, but it's going to be destroyed. But then immediately following chapter 13, where Jesus condemns the temple, and that's where we've been the last few weeks, there's a story of another woman who gives generously to Jesus, but he too is going to be destroyed. The difference is that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead as God's true temple. And so it's not random that this whole section that's been revolving around what's happening with the temple has these stories of two ladies that serve as the bookends, giving generously, sort of as a contrast. Throughout the Bible, the temple, you might know, holds this permanent, uh, prominent place in Scripture where it's, it's, it's where heaven meets earth, where, where man is to meet God is through the ministry of the temple. So this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You think about that at creation, God placed Adam and Eve in a garden temple, as it were, where his presence would meet them in the cool of the day and they were to worship God there. You move forward from there after sin enters the world, you have the tent of meeting with Moses which moves to the tabernacle, which moves to the first temple with King Solomon. But with the arrival of Jesus, the central meeting place for man to meet God was no longer a place. But with the arrival of Jesus, it becomes a person. It's no longer a place to go, but it's a person to encounter. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where you and I meet God. And this is actually what makes Christianity both challenging and a blessing at the same time. It's challenging because... As Westerners, we prefer systems and structures over interpersonal relationships, right? We prefer systems and structures, a, a quantifiable you know, data that can show my advancement. So what we prefer is, well, think about institutional religion. We want some sort of system to measure ourselves against to so know where we are and where we stack up, right? 
so we can prove ourselves. Or we want some sort of system so we can measure ourselves at least against other people to justify, well, at least I'm not that bad. So Christianity becomes really challenging because you don't get a system when you get Jesus. You get a person. But it actually is the greatest blessing because what you and I need isn't so much a system to measure ourselves. What we need, what we need in the midst of all of our chaos is a person who can tell us what's true even when it stings and then still love us unconditionally on the other side. That's infinitely better than a system or a structure. And so this woman understands this about Jesus. She understands that he's the place where the heart and the presence of God is going to be found. And she understands it so much that she offers what was most valuable to her. She took this ointment that was worth a, a year's earnings. It was 300 denarii, so it would have been like a savings account. It would have likely been a family heirloom that would have been sort of a covering or a provision for her in case a dark day came. She had at least this to trade and to, to make it through the dark day. But when she broke this flask, leaving nothing left, giving everything that she had, she was saying in this moment, Jesus, you are what's most valuable to me. Jesus, you are my provision. You are my covering for the dark day. I'm not looking to anything else. I'm not looking to anyone else. I'm putting all of my weight onto you. You're the place where I meet God. And she gives her everything. Whatever I have belongs to you. And so Jesus says that she actually prepared him for his burial. She's identifying with his coming death, even to the point that it's going to cost her everything, even in this, this ointment. And what's ironic about that is that's the very thing that the disciples have been distracted about. They don't want to admit. They don't want to talk about his death. They, they want to totally disassociate from his death. But this is the place where she comes to say, I want to identify entirely with you, even in your suffering. And then there's this crazy moment if you're tracking through this, in the middle of the narrative where the disciples, when she, when she breaks this and she pours it onto Jesus, that they scold her, they're indignant, they're irate. Like, hey, don't you realize that could have been sold and given to the poor? They, 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 as though they actually care about the poor in this moment. And I can't help but think about the whole flow of this passage that did they still have the moment with the widow giving her last two cents ringing in their ears? where the whole thing was the temple, the temple structure of the day, the temple institution of the day should have helped her, but instead it demanded from her and it, it devoured her home. And then they're probably thinking, okay, so we gotta care for the poor, we gotta care for the poor. And then they see this moment happen and they're just thinking about the poor. But the difference is the old temple, right? It demanded from the poor and it devoured them. But the new temple, Jesus, the place where you meet God, he's the place where the poor are invited to meet God and he is devoured in their place. It's different. This is the saying of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? It's totally different. So the second thing I want you to see, though, that's zooming out. I want to zoom back in because there's a theme of brokenness all through this passage. And just like the temple, it's woven throughout the Bible. This woman offers all that she had. Jesus said that she did what she could. Everything that she could possibly give, she gave. It was this act of love, but notice it was offered through brokenness. There's an act of love offered through brokenness. Isn't it interesting that often our default mindset is that God will only accept us in the moments that we're most acceptable. That God will only receive us in the moments that we're most receivable and we kind of have it put together. 
that he will only accept the gifts we give him or the offerings that we give him when they come from a place of being put together. And it, it's counterintuitive to us. It's totally counterintuitive because we want to cover up the ugly places. We want to cover up our weakness. But brokenness, according to what's happening in this passage, brokenness is the preferred and normative way that people meet God in the Bible. So the places that we want to cover up, the places that we want to push down, the places that we want to not think about or not talk about or not admit out loud, those are exactly the places that through the Bible, God prefers to meet you. And that's the normal way of meeting God. It's totally counterintuitive. We're afraid that in those places we'll be rejected. And it's precisely in those places that God wants to show us, that's where I accept you. In that place. This is what David picks up in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. And so listen, guys, far from the places of fracture and failure and brokenness being the places where the new temple would reject us, they're actually the place that not only does the new temple receive us. But this woman becomes the example for you and me. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done in her act of love through brokenness will actually be proclaimed through the whole world in memory of her. She's now the model. Come to God broken because that's how you meet him. That's how you meet him. But what's interesting in this passage is it moves from a new temple, Jesus, to a new sacrifice, moves from one dinner party with this woman with the ointment to another dinner party, and verse 12 tells us that it was the time of Passover. Jesus is going to take this sacred liturgy that had been practiced for generations, and he's going to reinterpret it. Pick up in verse 22. It says, as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. And I love this line. They sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is the moment in scripture where we recognize well, that's the Lord's Supper. Like that's what we do every week with the bread and the cup. And it might feel a bit casual to us because we're familiar but it's hard for us to really understand how mind-blowing and breathtaking this moment must have been for them. The Passover feast was a, was a holy feast that was observed every year, and it was a moment where they looked back on a defining moment for the nation of Israel. When God delivered them from slavery to Egypt, in particular the night that he came in judgment against Egypt. So maybe you remember the story Moses told Israel, God's gonna come in judgment. And the only way to survive this night is for you to kill a lamb. Prepare, eat, eat it for dinner, but take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the outer doorposts of your house. And the idea was that to be saved through God's judgment had nothing to do with your morality. To be saved through God's judgment had nothing to do with your religion. To be saved through God's judgment had nothing to do with your race. It had nothing to do with anything of you. But to be saved through God's judgment, to be safe, would be to trust what God provided to come underneath the blood of the lamb. And so this meal had a very particular order and form to it, a, a sort of a progress. 
And every piece of it was meant to teach of God's faithfulness to save and to rescue. And the traditional Passover table would have been set with fruit and herbs and wine. And it would have had a lamb in the middle of it, sort of as the main piece with unleavened bread there. And all of these elements were symbolic as a part of the story. But on this night, Jesus shifted everything. This moment that was meant to look back at God's faithfulness was now a moment where God's faithfulness is something moved to the present, right in their midst. And so Jesus took the bread. You know how it goes. He took the bread and he blessed it. And the traditional line at the Passover would have been, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. That's what they're expecting Jesus to say. But instead he says, this is my body broken for you, right? And what Jesus was saying in that moment was, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. I'm actually leading a new exodus. This is a new moment of God's faithfulness. This is a new deliverance. And notice he says, this is my body broken for you. And it wasn't just look at it. He says, take and eat. As if to say, just like that lamb, it wasn't just killing it and preparing it for dinner. It was applying it to the doorpost and coming underneath its blood the same way with my body, it's not just looking at it, it's taking of it and coming underneath it. And then he took the wine, and the wine was all about covenant, symbolizing blood. In the Old Testament, promises were always sealed with a blood sacrifice, as if to say, I will keep this covenant. I will honor this relationship even if it kills me, and if this covenant is ever broken, let the consequences fall on me. That's the whole idea of a blood, a blood, a blood sealing, a sealing of a, a covenant with a blood sacrifice. I will honor this relationship even if it kills me. And so Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And the amazing thing about this moment when he lifted the wine and we lifted the cup is this is not a covenant, a sacrifice that we make to God. This is a covenant that he's actually making to us through the blood of his son. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, makes this insightful observation here. He says, when Jesus Christ got up to bless the food that night, it was the weirdest Passover in history. Do you know why? When he blesses the food, you can see what food he blessed. There's bread and all Passover meals had bread. There's wine and all Passover meals had wine. But not one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, not one of the gospels ever talks about there being the presence of the main course. There's no mention of a lamb being there. Why wasn't there a lamb? Of course you know, don't you? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. The reason why when John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ for the first time, he said, behold, that's the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And so in the first story, there's this passage of extravagant love to Jesus and it comes through brokenness. But in the second story, there's this act of extravagant love from the Father in the breaking of his Son for the forgiveness of sins, yours and mine. The breaking of the Son is more than enough to cover us in our breaking. Do you believe that? The breaking of the Son of God is more than enough to cover you in your moments of breaking. The new temple brings us to a new sacrifice but it's not a sacrifice that we offer to him. It's a sacrifice that he offers to us. This is why Jesus is different. New temple, new sacrifice. Hey, let's finish this thing today. 
with Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king. There's this string of verses in the middle of this passage that are sort of bizarre. The moment where they're preparing for the Passover and Jesus says, here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to go into the town and there you're going to find this guy carrying a jar. And when you find that guy, uh, follow him. And it's not going to be creepy, I promise, right? Follow him and say, my master has need of your house. And he'll look at you and go, well, have my house. As though that's what people say when you say that sort of thing. Come on in, right? And he goes, and there we'll have the Passover. And you're like, and so it says they, they, they do this, and it went down just as Jesus said. This is a sort of bizarre passage. But if you notice what's happening in the flow of Scripture, this looks almost identical to the moment before they entered Jerusalem. Jesus, they were entering into Jerusalem, and he says, hey, hey, stop here, guys. I actually want you to go into the city, and you're going to find a young mule that's not tied to a hitching post. And when you find this particular mule, grab it for me. And if anyone says, why are you taking that mule? You just say, my master has need of it. And they're going to go, oh, clearly. Well, then take the mule, right? And it says they go in and they find this, and it goes down just exactly as he said. So what's going on here with these verses? Mark is showing us that in the midst of the absolute chaos breaking loose on Jesus, that's what's happening. There's absolute chaos breaking loose on Jesus. The religious leaders are trying to arrest him by stealth. One of his own is betraying him from the inside. They're hunting him. They're trying to take him down. It looks like his attackers are winning. But in the midst of all of this, here's what this passage is showing us. There's not a single moment where his life is being taken from him. There's not a single moment where he's out of control. All of this is happening. It looks like it's absolute chaos being unleashed on God's son. But all of this is going down exactly according to plan. His life isn't being taken from him. He's laying it down. And he has the authority to take it back up again. And here's what's so mind-blowing about this passage. He's so secure He's so secure in the purposes of his father that he even has his own betrayer at his table for his last supper and he serves him in the same way along with everybody else. I don't even understand that kind of presence. I don't understand that kind of confidence in the purposes of God that I can even have my own betrayer at my table and offer him my broken body and my shed blood. But this is why he's the true king and not me. But this is why he's the true king and not any of us. He's the true king because he's not asking any of his people to defend him. He's not asking any of his people to stand up for him. He's not asking any of his people to sacrifice themselves for him. Instead, he's the true king because he's the true temple who's led us to a new sacrifice where he defends us. He stands up for us and he sacrifices himself for us. That's different. And so here's the application today, just a couple of questions. Jesus is the new temple. He's the place where we meet God. But a question would be, where are you avoiding him and why are you refusing him? Isn't it interesting that like, we know that we need God but we still choose instead, ah, let me just busy my life. Let me just turn up productivity. Let me just sort of, you know, numb myself. Let me find coping mechanisms. Let me do all these other things. We form all these different temples. 
when actually what's happening in scripture is he's the new temple. He is the place, not productivity, not coping mechanisms, not shoving things down. Jesus Christ, the man from Galilee, is the place where we meet God. The second question is, do you really believe that he'll receive you in your brokenness? Probably not, because <laughs> I know I don't always believe that. But the example of scripture should actually reframe our instincts around brokenness. Do you realize there's not a single moment in scripture where someone comes to God totally busted and he rejects them? Every single moment where anyone brings themselves before God totally busted, totally exposed, totally uncovered, without fail, he accepts every single one. Do you really believe he'll receive you in your brokenness? And if not, why not? It'd be amazing to talk about that with your community groups and friends this week. The second is this, Jesus is the new sacrifice, which means there's nothing left to prove. Oh man, there's nothing left to prove and there's no more blood to be shed. There's not. So the question is, where in your life do you still feel like you have to prove yourself to God as though Jesus isn't enough? That is all over Bible Belt Christianity. I gotta prove him with my sort of religious eyes dotted and T's crossed. I gotta prove him with all my activism. I gotta prove to him with all of my, you know, uh, being a type A person and having my five-year plan and everything sort of jotted. God, look at me, I've got it all together and I'm moral and I'm between the lines and I have conservative values and I'm proving myself to God. There's no more proving left. Jesus is the one who proves you before the Father. The second question, though, is like it, and it's actually where I find myself most of the time. Where in your life do you feel like you have to beat yourself up in order to be worthy of forgiveness as though Jesus isn't enough? He's the new sacrifice. There's no proving left to do, but there's also no beating up left to do as though his beatings weren't enough, and you've got to add to it with self-shame self-accusation and cross-examination and internal conflict. No, 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 no. Remember the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. There's no more beating up left to do. The new temple, the new sacrifice, the true king, he's totally different. He's not asking us to unfold ourselves before him. He actually unfolds himself before us and he says, come follow me. And our response is to say, I will. Yes, Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to believe you? God, would you search our hearts and would you show us the places that we're avoiding you and we're refusing you out of a preference for our own coping mechanisms. Jesus, that you really are the place we can meet the Father. And we really don't have to prove ourselves to you anymore or beat ourselves up anymore. You're enough for us. We want to just confess that together. You're enough for us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you search us? Would you show us? And would you help us to be glad? Would you help us to be glad as citizens of the new king, the true king? And Jesus, we offer this prayer in your name.
Amen.